In this episode, I spoke to Zach Marks, who's the co-founder of GIA, which is a microfinance company catering to Kenya and the Philippines. They caught my eye because of their unique blockchain-based model. We focus on what makes GIA different from traditional companies, but also cover things like algorithmic bias, the state of crypto in the US, Kenya, and the Philippines, his thoughts on UBI, and more. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me, Zach. I uh, first heard about you at ETH Denver, where you gave a talk about Geo, which I thought was super cool. And I feel like it's a really special kind of project because it's in this space, there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a whole spectrum, but I feel like you you kind of hit the the sweet spot on these different aspects of like, you're using interesting technology to solve real world problems. And it's a real world problem that is is very important. And it's it's a really big issue. Um, and especially kind of from an American perspective, I feel like sometimes it's it's hard for people to grasp the the realities. And I know you've spent uh, quite quite a lot of time traveling and doing lots of cool stuff and and uh, so, yeah, I just want to kind of hear your your story about how, how you uh, came up with Gia. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate you having me. And thanks for coming to the East Denver talk. Um, let's see where where to begin. I, I guess like a, just for context for your audience, what, what the big the big problem you are referring to, I guess, is what I'd call like the five trillion dollar credit gap in emerging markets, um, which is really the challenge I've spent most of my career focused on. Um, I guess for just like some introduction, like how did I get into doing that? I mean, I'm from Philadelphia originally. It's not a place with a massive credit gap, um, but I, I, I sort of ended up um, after I've always loved traveling and learning new languages and just hanging out in, in new countries. And so after college, I started my career as an English teacher. Um, I taught English in India and Brazil and Ethiopia. I was basically just hopping around the globe on these little English teaching fellowships um, and you know, like any traveler, I love, I mean, I loved hanging out in like street food stalls and hanging out with street vendors. And you, you mentioned like your parents ran restaurants and like I would hang out at restaurants and, um, you know, like roadside, little like maybe one, one or two person owned restaurants. And what, you, what I saw there, of course, is, you know, as I got to know some people, like as I got to know Ramesh, this chaiwala who served chai and samosas outside the school where I taught in India, is that without access to finance, it's really difficult to run a business, to grow it, and to basically provide enough to feed your family. Um, and, you know, I'm sure like your your family's restaurant in San Diego probably was able to tap into some like bank credit line to have enough like extra cans of tomato sauce or bottles of whiskey behind the bar so that if someone came in and ordered more tomatoes than <laughs> more pasta than was expected, you know, you'd be able to produce it. Whereas in a lot of emerging markets, that's just not the case. Like that person running that small roadside restaurant might not have access to finance to have enough inventory or at least to buy inventory in bulk so that they can access good prices and, and make a healthy profit to feed their families. And so that was sort of like, for me, I guess, the intro into this, into this topic. And I think I was very fortunate in that when I began my professional career beyond teaching. I was working as a management consultant in one of these consulting firms that typically just works with Fortune 500 firms doing corporate strategy. But because I had lived in emerging markets, I ended up working on a lot of international development projects. And that was my first exposure to this to this challenge of financial inclusion from a professional perspective. Um, and so where I began sort of my work in this field was 
in what I call like the first wave of traditional microfinance. Um, I was working on projects largely funded by large development institutions like the World Bank and USAID um, to basically help provide uh, very small loans to small businesses or smallholder farmers. Um, my first project was in South Sudan for about a year after they got independence. And that's sort of how I began sort of working in this space. Um, I guess just to sort of like sort of accelerate the story of how I got to from doing that to, to GIA in a nutshell, and then we can dive into GIA. But um, what I, the way these traditional microfinance groups work is you put people in small groups um, so that they're mutually accountable for each other, but they also have like a common shared stake in ownership. And the idea is that, if, you know, if you went to a bank and said, hey, bank in India, why don't you give a loan to this guy selling samosas? They'd say, well, the main problem that I can't serve them is one, I have no data to underwrite them. So I have no idea how many samosas they're selling. And two, they're just like not big enough for me to like really care about. Like maybe they need a $200 loan, but it costs me more than that just to reach them. Um, and so the the way that traditional microfinance, the Grameen bank model that a lot of people might know, they like took a college economics class or something like that, is that basically you'd put people together in groups, say it'd be like me, you, and 10 of our friends. And if you don't repay, Ryan, that's okay because I've got your back. Like the microfinance institution is still going to collect because we're all on the hook for you. Um, and that sort of that 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 was sort of like the first wave, I think, of microfinance that ex began expanding financial access. But that model, it, it worked really well in small groups, but it doesn't really scale very well. So once the groups get beyond a certain size, the trust breaks down, so people stop repaying as much. And just to operationalize it, it's very expensive from a microfinance institution perspective because you have to hire a lot of credit officers to go and like manually meet all the Ryans out there and onboard them into the group. So seeing that challenge of scale is what led me to sort of join what I think is like microfinance 2.0, uh, the wave of fintech lending. And so I, I worked at a company was, which I think was really, really pioneering and innovative and in that it was the first company to do mobile lending. This is the concept that uh, there are, say there are 3 billion people in the world without a credit score. Most of them now have phones and your phone is all this data about you. So we came up with a mobile app, which people would download and give us access to their phone data. And we'd use that to underwrite them for very small loans. And this totally solved the problem of scale. Like all you had to do is just like turn on a Facebook ad and you know, you can pretty seamlessly onboard people into, 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 into getting finance, but we totally lost the community trust and ownership and element uh, ownership element. So what would happen is we started seeing very high default rates because naturally as people don't, you know, if it comes down to, um, am I going to repay this loan on this mobile phone app or my local, my local group where I have maybe ownership shares, I'll always, you know, pay back the local group. And I even heard some of our borrowers would say, um, hey, in my, and this is in Kenya, they'd say, hey, in my SACO, a SACO is a Kenyan savings and credit cooperative. It's an acronym. Um, they'd say in my SACO, after I repay my loan, I put my money in and I get shares. I've been taking your loans for a year. So why can't I have shares from you guys? And even if we'd wanted to distribute ownership, like having fractional equity distributed around the globe, it's actually quite impractical to do that. But if you represent ownership on chain with a token, um, it's actually a quite seamless, efficient way to distribute ownership. And I think it was probably hearing one of like the early Chris Dixon Web3 kind of podcasts about the ownership economy, where he was talking about like, you know, why does Spotify get all the upside, not the musicians? Why does Uber get all the value and not the drivers? Made me think, huh, yeah, like why did the fintech lenders make all the, have all like the ownership upside and the borrowers are just sort of stuck getting the same high interest loans, but not necessarily building wealth. And um, 
building wealth through through ownership. So that's what sort of led me to start thinking about a new model of doing microfinance and is what led me to start GIA, where like in, in short, what we do is we provide blockchain-based financing. So we aggregate capital on-chain and then we finance that to small, we provide financing to, to small businesses in Kenya and the Philippines. Those are our initial markets, but eventually in, in other markets in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And when the borrowers repay, they get these token rewards, they sort of become owners of this basically global credit collective, you can think of it. So that's sort of a, a long winded answer of, of who I am and how I got to this problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's super interesting. And in particular, kind of the on chain data and creating scores for people which otherwise wouldn't have any type of score. So I'm I'm kind of torn. It's I feel like we're heading towards that world. And so no matter what we do, we're just everyone's generating all this data and businesses are going to use it. The part that I think is really important is the transparency issue and, and making sure people understand how things work. So I, I think um, it's going to be illuminating for people. Um, so I know you've spent time in, in Kenya, obviously, and I've spent a little time in, in Uganda, hope, hoping to get to Kenya someday, oh, cool. but, um, it's, you know, nice. it's, it's common practice there for a lot of places. You have your, your energy meter and you become hyper aware of what cost what for your, your energy and you realize very quickly. Um, and I think the same thing happens for, you know, people that live there and they, they just understand because it's like that information is always there and you know. So that's, I think, is really good. The part that I'm a bit worried about is, you know, you see major companies like uh, Airbnb comes to mind where they have sort of practices of they're making associations with people and then preemptively sort of just not even allowing you to, to book a room. Now, mm. I think it's what what I would like to see is if as the world transitions to this model is if the companies are just being transparent. And just saying, like, yeah, we're using the information. This is how we're using it. I understand that there there can be issues where you need some sort of privacy um, because people are always going to game the system. I mean, it's like you know, it's it happens on social media platforms and everything. But I would just like to hear kind of your thoughts on how you're thinking about this. Well, I think I think maybe something of what you're hinting at a little bit, like with the Airbnb point, is there's just this general challenge of potentially potential algorithmic bias, which creeps in um, regardless of whether we're talking about blockchain or not. Like the, I think um, my take on this is that uh, humans for generations and for like whatever, a lot of history have just been like biased, prejudiced, racist, sexist people. And so when um, big businesses have had to make business decisions, the most obvious example is like, can I get a, a loan from a bank? humans have traditionally had their biases. So, you know, in, in America, we have a long history of um, not providing fair financing to African-Americans or other minority groups. Um, in Kenya, like certain tribes get discriminated against in general around the world. I think women are often excluded. And so you have these human biases. And so the idea of like, oh, we're going to introduce data because data will help us make more fair decisions not in, in, impacted by those biases. But the reality, of course, is that data you know, any, any, any algorithmic based decision scheme is also going to have inherent biases because it's a human who writes the program. And so like interesting examples of this would be, you know, at the company where I used to work, we'd use um, mobile phone data to underwrite. Now, of course we would like 
you know, remove gender as a label or remove last name as a label. So you wouldn't be inadvertently discriminating against someone who was a female or had a certain tribe's last name. But if we're looking at, say, the mobile phone apps you're using, you know, what if it turns out that the people who are people who have the Quran app downloaded repay at a different rate? It's not like any human has come in and said, hey, go look to see if they have the Quran app and then like judge them differently. It's just like, a you know, if given a whole set of raw data and then a model is told, hey, figure something out, like go figure out like meaning of like who's more likely to repay. It's possible, of course, for some of that data to like lead the the algorithm to make decisions that end up discriminating against a certain class. And I think we've seen, and there's been really good like ProPublica reporting on this. I think there was something about like, um, how like inadvertently all these test prep centers were price discriminating, charging like way higher rates in Asian American neighborhoods because there's way higher demand, which sort of makes sense, I guess, used for like price according to demand. But you don't want to be like just, you know, charging one entire set of people a higher price than another set. Um, so this is sort of like a riff on algorithmic bias, which I, I guess is not necessarily related to the on-chain stuff in particular, where it does get interesting about on chain, I guess is we're just moving to a world where more and more of our human interactions um, that used to be offline are now online. And as we move to a world where more and more of that data is not just stored in centralized segmented databases, like oh, one company has its you know lender database and another company has its other lender database or borrower database, you know, increasing as that goes on chain, then like everyone sort of has access to that. And maybe that's like the scary world you're like talking about is like, what if like all of our data is all out there and like we basically can't get out of it. Like kind of like that Black Mirror episode, like we're just like stuck in, you know, like, you know, you, you pissed someone off when you were 12 and then like everyone who saw you just like assumed you'd be a kind of person who's going to piss them off and you're never going to be able to get hail an Uber. Um, I don't have a solution for that, but it certainly sounds like a scary world. Yeah. Um, I don't have a solution either, but I, I you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, it's just, um, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's just the, the data is going to be there if it's on, on chain and we can come up with social conventions to say, Hey, that was seven years ago. Therefore, when we are calculating your loan or whatever, it's going to be different than if it was yesterday or something like that. That's possible. Totally. Correct. I think for the most part, like the, for the most part, having more data out there, enabling like service providers to make more accurate decisions about you, for the most part, that's a good thing. Um, like I think for mostly what's going to happen is like, it, I think it's rare that there's going to be a case where it's like, oh, the lender was totally going to approve you if only they hadn't like seen all this other data about you. More likely, you're someone who is sort of like a data invisible or someone who so you don't have enough data. So no lender was going to give you a loan anyway. And now you have something. So now at least they're able to give you some bit. And I think that's that's generally how I see like, I mean, I think that was one of the great things that we did at my last company is like we were mostly dealing with folks who did not have an existing credit score. Um, and so it's not like they were out there as like, you know, oh, it's like pure, clean, innocent. And so everyone's giving them loans. It's like, no, no, they don't have a credit score. So no one's giving them loans. At least we take a first chance on them and then they can begin to build some file. Um, I should say there are like, caveats that being a good thing like in in some countries the credit bureau system ends up like doing probably more harm than good by like just sort of blacklisting people for like one small you know in in kenya a lot of people take loans as small as like five dollars on their mobile phones and i think it's you know no everyone would agree that it would be very bad that if you just like you know default or one one week late on one five dollar loan you should like not be able to access 
the credit system for the rest of your life, like, no, that's clearly bad. And so I think in, I mean, even in Kenya, they sort of have been fixing that problem by like sort of re like doing a, a, a refresh or a reset on, on who's blacklisted. But still, um, I think for the most part, having that data out there is, is, does, does, does more good than, than harm. Yeah. I was, um, looking over your light paper and I noticed that, mm. um, it was stated that the average loan is about a hundred dollars to $5,000. And it got me yeah. thinking about this whole idea of, of microfinance. And I feel like when I hear that term, at least I think of places like Africa, I don't think of places like mm -hmm. the United States, but at the same time, I mean, if there was a way for people in the United States to easily get that range of a loan, I feel like people would use yeah. it. So my question is, why don't we see that kind of system prevalent in places like the United States? Well, I think we, we just do in like suboptimal ways. I mean, the, okay. So the, the, the borrower profile for whom like a 100 to $5,000 loan, I mean, anyone who's running a very small business can use inventory financing of that amount. And so I guess we think about it, people in the West often are like, yeah, hundred dollars. I bet that goes a really long way over there. And like, yes, it does certainly go further over there than it does over here. But at the same time, if you're running, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and you know, and one of the best parts about living in Los Angeles, like there's like taco sellers in like every street. Right. And those, those folks really come out with a table of a bunch of tortillas and, and some meats. And I think, you know, I, I don't know exactly know how, how they're all financed. I think there's actually some great community development, financial institutions here doing work with, with street vendors, but a lot of them would very much benefit from an inventory financing product of say like a thousand dollars. Cause that might be like their inventory for a night. Um, in lieu of formal micro financing, those folks are largely left to like rack up credit card debt or just take consumer loans. And that's sort of what I, what, what we see in emerging markets. It's not that, um, people who run small businesses have no access to finance at all. Like they, there's always going to be like a local lender who like knows everyone. And, you know, if you screw up, they come and like, you know, enforce their, you know, they have their ways of, of collecting money from you. Um, so there's like, there's, there's lenders like that. And you can probably always get some sort of like unsecured consumer credit. I mean, it might not be unsecured. It's like you take, it's like a pawn shop, right? You could like take your gold watch and you could get some money so you can open your taco business for the day. It's just that that's a really, really bad way to finance a business. You shouldn't have to put up your personal like jewelry to get as, as collateral to get money for your business. Because if, you know, ideally if your business is running, you should be able to say, Hey, look, I have like receivables. I have this invoices out. Now, not every street vendor has like formal invoices, but increasingly there's more and more data we can use to underwrite them. Like even in the US, like I pay those taco guys with Venmo sometimes, like there's some data trail, right? And in Kenya, since mobile money is everywhere, people are paying street vendors in M-Pesa that creates some data trail. That's data that can be used to underwrite folks, to give them access to finance. That's better than just like, a, you know, a triple digit APR unsecured payday loan. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um... I was I was wondering about sort of what it looks like practically. So my understanding is that right now you're in Kenya and the Philippines and you have these partnerships. So it's not like you're going out and trying to find these individuals and explain all this. So there's already kind of a, a little right. the liaison there. But what does it look like on on their side? Like what kind of businesses are are getting these loans and and yeah, just how does that work? 
Yeah. So for the most part, as you're referring, we do work with local partner companies or organizations. And the idea here is um, emerging markets, for the most part, you're, you're sometimes operating in an environment of low trust. Like if someone new comes up and is like, hey, you want to take a loan from me? Like, I think a lot of people would be pretty skeptical. Like, who, who is this person? I mean, people would be excited about the opportunity for a loan, but like, can you really trust them? Are they going to treat you right? Like, should I be doing this? Um, also, uh, emerging markets or environments with like low data ability to underwrite. Like you can't just like, you know, necessarily put up a Facebook ad and say, hey, just submit your credit score and I'll underwrite you. So what we do is we've partnered with companies who have networks of small businesses where they already have this trusted relationship with those small businesses because they've been serving them. Maybe they're like a wholesale supplier or maybe they provide some inventory management software or something like that. Um, and they also have not just the trusted relationship, but a lot of proprietary data about these small businesses, which might not be currently used to underwrite. So I'll just like give examples of what this looks like. Um, our first partnership in Kenya was with a company called Ilara Health. Ilara Health has a network of like 2000 medical clinics around Kenya. Um, really small, like roadside. You know, maybe it, it could be as it could be as advanced as like they have like an operating theater, but for the most part, we're talking about like they have like maybe you know one little doctor's examination room and and this, a small little pharmacy. And what Ilara does, for the most part, uh, in addition to providing some low cost diagnostic devices, is they sell medicines to these clinics. And they've been selling a lot of they, they've had a lot of these relationships for several years now. And the clinics all sort of want financing, which is understandable because maybe they buy the medicines on a Monday, but the patients don't come in until Friday and maybe don't even pay them for another week or so. And meanwhile, the clinics have to finance their, their business. Um, Ilara is a medical services provider, so they don't want to be being the credit originator. So they tie up with us. We use all of that proprietary data and we basically enable them to offer a buy now, pay later sort of inventory financing product. And so in that example, just to, you know, say how, how it looks like if you're a medical clinic, um, you basically already have your relationship with Ilara where probably like every month, maybe even every week, you're talking to one of their sales agents saying, hey, it's time for me to get another shipment of, I need some antibiotics and I need this antiviral and whatever, like some aspirin and some syringes, whatever you need. Um, uh, and then, you know, um, it could just be as informally as um, they're, they, they're already asking like, hey, can I, can I pay for these on finance? Or it could be if, they, you know, if they're checking out with the sales agent or through their little um, mobile application, they have the option there, like buy with GIA effectively, like get access financing from GIA. Um, what the, in that experience, then they just sort of get the goods, the inventory. They're not getting any cash loan, right? They're just getting inventory sold to them on credit. But then they're, when they repay, they're repaying to a GIA wallet. Um, now today, effectively what's happening is um, there's sort of an interim step where when they repay, it maybe goes to GIA's wallet and then we re-unwrap it onto an on-chain pool. But what we're working on building is just making that one seamless flow so that when that medical clinic says, yep, I want to buy my medicines with GIA, what literally happens in the back end, even though it's abstracted from them, is money is being off-ramped from a liquidity pool where LPs have deployed capital, taken into Kenyan shillings and paid for those medicines. And then when that medical clinic repays, the money automatically gets re-on-ramped on-chain and provides a return to those LPs if they want to withdraw the capital. Um, and as that happens, of course, that medical clinic is building this like on-chain credit history. So that is sort of how it, yeah, that, that, that's how it works from a customer perspective. Cool. So, you know, um, on your website and Twitter, you have these stories about people that have used the product and it's, it's really cool. And I'm just curious, how do you, how do you see this evolving over time? 
you know, like if someone's a, a street vendor and they're selling their yeah. delicious food, but one day they want to mm -hmm. they want to change their business and like, are there going to be limitations? Are you going to be like, that's too much of a change? Like, mm. or like I want to be a YouTuber. I need to buy a camera and all, like is how would you how do you think about that? Oh, interesting. You know, um, so one thing is that in at least in the markets that we're operating, the line actually between like personal and business is often like quite blurred. Like we know that when you know, one of the reasons why we, when we do that inventory financing for the medicines, we just provide medicine, medicines instead of cash is even if they say they're going to use the cash for medicines, sometimes they might end up like paying their kids school fees because that's just like what cash is available. Anyway, I mentioned that because that's sort of like the, the like the negative side of why we wouldn't just want to give cash to someone at the same time if someone's building up a reputation as like a credit worthy individual running their small business just buying medicines i think at some point they sort of like have earned some trust that if they said hey actually what i'm looking to do is you know have this startup loan to do this other type of business we'd look at them much more favorably uh we haven't really developed that product offering yet like the i love the idea like the pivot like the pivot capital or something like that um so because for now we're we really and, and for the and in general we now provide more like operating capital kind of loans so it's either it's, it's either inventory financing or invoice financing or in some cases when it is just cash it's working capital but this is for businesses that are already established already have a stream of revenues that we're underwriting against um as opposed to like this is an entrepreneur who like has an idea for a new business and he just needs like his startup loan. We're not really doing that yet, but I think certainly you'd be more qualified to get one of those kinds of loans if you'd already been operating with us for a while. So I love that idea. Um, I don't want to pigeonhole anyone into being a restaurateur if they really want to be a YouTuber. Awesome. So Kenya and the Philippines are very different places. What are kind of some of the unique yeah, sure. challenges of operating in those in those markets? And how do you actually decide where to spend your time? I, I'm assuming you're in Los Angeles right now. Uh, but I know you, yeah. know, you go to yeah, conferences, yeah. You're, you're jumping all over the place. So how, how do you do it? Yeah, well, um, good question. I guess like, I mean, one might ask like, wait, why are you in those two markets? Like they're like not next to each other, kind of random. I think part of it, like my, like, my co-founder and my own startup journey is a lot of times you just like start with, with what you know. And these happen to be two markets that we've worked in, in, in the microfinance setting for much of the past decade. So we just sort of like know the markets, we know regulators, we know partners, we know how to set up businesses. We've gotten like the right licenses. Um, that's just like a practical issue, but from a macroeconomic perspective, they also just happen to be very good markets to start FinTech lending businesses to begin with. They're on, they're, they're on the larger size, of market of like total addressable market for their region um regulatory conditions are more favorable and i think a really important key in, is that mobile financial services and digital financial services adoption is higher there than in some other markets so you can underwrite more easily and so that's i mean even just one difference for example between kenya and the philippines is in kenya you know it's really had this mobile money miracle you know long before people were using venmo and you know, like Square and Zelle and stuff in, in the U.S. to check out, uh, at, at, you know, at your coffee shop, just pay with your phone. People in Kenya have been doing that through this mobile money service called M-Pesa, which basically is an extension. It's, it's, it's a product that the telco, Safaricom, offers um, so that, you know, for purchases even as small as just like some bananas on the side of the road, you can just send money from your mobile phone wallet to, to, to the merchants. 
Um, that means there's way, way, way more data available there to underwrite. And it also means that just like adoption of a new product on your phone is a lot easier because you don't have to convince, you don't have to get someone in the mindset of like, wait a second, I have to download an app and then what do I do? I, you know, I, I'm, they're already used to doing that. And um, in the Philippines, adoption is like sort of slower on that front. And so in some ways you actually have to work more seamlessly with partners to access other sources of data because you might not be able to just get it from say their mobile money receipts. Um, I think there are sort of like just general, like, like I mean, every culture is slightly different and there are cultural differences. Um, in the Philippines, I think finances are sometimes like a bit more like matriarchal. So we, we see like more small businesses that might be like um, a, a husband wife duo, like the wife maybe controlling more of the decisions or even just like more women run shops. Um, which I think like, you know, it's, it's kind of a stereotype to say, but it's pretty true that like women are generally like better borrowers and like more responsible, uh, entrepreneurs and, and people uh, probably cause like they're thinking more about their family than, than guys are, unfortunately. Um, the, but for the, you know, what's, what's, what's always interesting to me is how many similarities there are across these markets. I mean, I, as an individual, I'm like very, I love, like, I love cultural and like diversity and the idea that like, oh my God, you know, I, I lived in India for four years. And what I always loved about it is that in each of these 30 states, you basically have different languages, completely different cultures, different customs, different foods, different, you know, ways of life. And so it's so fascinating how people can be so different. And yet when it comes down to how they interact with some financial technology products, there actually are, can be a lot of similarities and how people run. I mean, a lot of that is just because the way you run a small convenience store does not vary all that much between Manila and Nairobi. Like, yes, maybe like the individual products you give are slightly different and maybe the, um, you know, the amount of customers you have in your neighborhood might be slightly different. But for the most part, like the margins are kind of similar and the way you're like sourcing from a single supplier are kind of similar. So microfinance has been around for a while, but how does GIA kind of stand out and sort of more specifically why is the blockchain aspect so important? Yeah, good question. And I think, you know, what, what what are we all trying to do? Anyone who probably got into the world of microfinance, I mean, some people might think that this is, oh, this is my way to get rich. I'm going to charge a lot of interest, but probably not. For the most part, people who are in this world are in it because they think they're working on some major challenge that we have in our world to make people better off generally by giving them more access to finance. Um, and in some like, in some cases, there's certainly success stories in the in the canon of microfinance. There's certainly stories of people who had businesses that weren't able to grow, and then all of a sudden they were able to open a second shop, and with that extra money, they paid for their kid to go to college, and boom, like that's a great success story. There's also a lot of sort of like not so obvious success stories that were like, huh, yeah, you gave someone some financing, so they took it and then they paid you some interest, but like they weren't left better off. Like maybe they were able to even open that second shop, but literally they have no more money for themselves because they're just paying off some high interest fee. Um, for me, what sort of like got me really excited about blockchain is this concept of like the ownership economy. Like how do we, in, in America, what's been like the story of most people's like generational wealth has been largely through ownership of real estate like you know everyone that's why america the federal government always like pushed like home ownership so much throughout the 20th century that's like when, when people who don't have very much they invest in a home and they're able to build equity in that and then they pass it on to their kids and there you have like some generational wealth the same way people invest in the stock market it's that way their money is not just like sitting in 
dollars and sort of like at the whim of inflation, it's sort of growing along with the rest of the economy. What hasn't happened in microfinance is that level of sort of distributed ownership where you, the actual end borrower gets to be an owner in the enterprise. And this does happen at a very small level, like in credit unions um, or in these informal small groups, it happens. The problem is with these small groups, say in Kenya, the, the thing you have the shared ownership of is only is the money that's already in your community. Um, it's not necessarily a, a larger enterprise, right? Like you becoming an owner of this bigger financial institution that's serving people outside your community. Um, and so that is sort of, for me, like the social impact or change thesis is this idea of like, we get, we're giving people a stake in this, so that they're, they're, they're building sort of long-term upside as well. Um, the reason why blockchain is really just an enabler of that solution uh there you know you could imagine a web two way of doing this it would be that you know if we as a u.s corporation like had a way to like magically distribute some fractional shares of our company to every borrower when they repaid the thing is it's just logistically legally uh regulatorily just like practically very very complex like you deliver like a sheet of paper to someone and then like what do they do with it Whereas with a token, by the concept of programmable money, you don't just have that be a paper where they're like, uh, okay, thank you. I guess when you guys IPO, maybe I'll make some money. Um, but you, actually that token can be valuable now. And the way it works in the GIA ecosystem is that as people accrue these GIA tokens, and, and the token's not live yet, so right now what they're accruing is GIA points, which are sort of a stand-in for the token. Um, but um, GIA points unlock credit rewards. So as they get more points they can get lower interest rates on their a discount on their on their interest payments they can unlock higher loan amounts and longer payment terms they're already getting a better credit experience because it's just like this liquid token that represents something or because it's liquid they can just cash out you know so we have they, what we're running a bunch of different experiments with this with this token but it's really interesting to see we say hey would you like to you have 100 geo points you can use it to unlock 500 shillings discount on your next loan, or you can just like cash it out now for a hundred shillings. Like, what do you want to do? And like different people have different preferences. Some people are just like, I want that liquidity now. I don't really care about this token thing. Some people are like, oh, I want to hold on to my tokens and I want to keep participating in this ecosystem. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, what we're beginning to see and experiment with. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, I feel like when it comes to the topic of kind of finance and these types of businesses. It's not exactly the most sort of um, heartwarming um, line of business, but at the same time, it's a super intimate aspect of someone's life. It's how they're spending their money. Yeah. Um, and I know you've you've mentioned in the past about um, possibly making a DAO. Are you still interested in doing that? So I'd say before I say anything about a DAO, we're interested in building a community for sure. And we're already beginning to do that. So what's, you know, I think it's probably not surprising for anyone who's like tried to start a business, start anything. Like I'm sure, you know, you're starting a podcast. I'm sure it'd be, you appreciate the chance to like interact with other podcasters who can share their like best practices. Like, oh, hey, here's how you get some more Twitter visibility or here's how you set up the microphone or whatever. You know, people are interested, are hungry for community to, to sort of share best practices. And so we're beginning to take what sort of exists already like in fragmented, maybe WhatsApp groups or, you know, offline communities. We're trying to bring that into an online forum where, um, where, where GIA borrowers like in Kenya, for example, can interact with each other and share different, you know, entrepreneurship tips. Um, for now, even within GIA, that is like scattered across some like WhatsApps. 
Um, and we have like an initial sort of like private discord where our initial investors and, and the LPs in the, in the pool and sort of, I guess I'd call like friends of GIA and the ecosystem can begin just discuss it, like talking and, and, and some of it's just like learning more about the subject matter. And some of it's maybe speculating on the future of the space. Um, in the long run, what I do imagine is bringing those communities together. Like, I think it would be really beautiful to like right now, if you think about, um, think about like the capital that gets deployed to most like folks in Kenya, it, like it, it's so many steps from you in the West. Like maybe you have some of your money in some like Vanguard fund. And maybe some of that is like somehow like makes the way to a hedge fund, to an institutional private credit fund, to some microfinance institution in Kenya, to finally the end borrower. There's like a lot of institutions and steps in between. Whereas what we're trying to do is just make it so that, um, you know, emerging markets are, investment opportunities have like largely been the providence just of like large head fund hedge funds or sort of like a, a private group of like bankers in New York and London who like get access to this, but not just like everyday folks um, with the maybe exception of getting to participate in a program like Kiva, where you sort of like picking a borrower somewhere, which is a really cool like non blockchain project. Um, but what we're trying to do, yeah, is, is make it so that when you participate in this, this liquidity pool, you're very close to that borrower. And you should, we should be able to, you know, have, have formal linkages in a community. And that, that you talked about a DAO, like the idea is that this community can be governing where this goes next. So, you know, right now, because we're relatively new, of course, we have a core team, which says, Hey, we're going to, we're, we're working in Kenya and the Philippines because that's where this makes sense. But it doesn't have to be very long to imagine that, you know, someone who's a part of the community says, Hey, you know, I actually run a network of small businesses in Nigeria. And I think the solution could be really helpful. Like, how do we, let's, let, I'm going to put it up for a governance vote that like, we're going to allocate some portion of the GIA treasury. Um, you know, we, we just made a million dollars in invoice finance revenue in Kenya. Let's take 500K of that and try an invoice finance pilot in Nigeria. Put it up for a vote. People can say, hey, let's do it. Um, that's very different than if you think about the way like most companies or fintechs operate like you know as a as an airbnb customer i don't really get to decide i'm not like hey airbnb launch in nigeria because i you know I, mean, I can i can give the customer feedback in like the form but i don't get to actually vote on it from a formal perspective so i think that is really exciting just the idea of giving giving thinking of customers not as customers but as sort of members um and giving them a voice in how we how we govern ourselves which is you know, again, it's it's a cool concept enabled by blockchain. It's not revolutionary in the history of human activity. You know, I buy my outdoors goods at REI, which is like a member-owned co-op. Uh, I buy my groceries at like the Santa Monica co-op. Um, I don't like participate much in governance. I'm not like, hey, we need to buy like quinoa at this price and not that price. But uh, like uh, the fact that I am an owner means I sort of can, I do have some voice. Um, and I think we're just trying to do that on a global scale. I think the sort of the idea of creating community is super awesome and definitely a good um, thing to pursue. The The term DAO is just so loaded um, and it's still yeah. so early in, in the stage. It's like you're going to get different answers and everyone's trying to figure it out and it's super complicated. So maybe down the road when it comes a little more solidified, that can become something that more sort of businesses can can interact with. Um on, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, what do you think about what 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 do you, what do you think about that concept? Um, like, at what point is it beneficial to go from community, like just you know, loosely like tied together community with a shared goal, to 
DAO? <laughs> so I feel like having a very specific goal um, in mind, it helps a lot. It's kind of like the, the Ballergian uh, sense of how to mm. run a DAO. Um, but then you look at the numbers and the data and you see the partition partition patient rates in DAOs are extremely low. Voter turnout is extremely low. Mm. Um, and even the most active, it's just like not quite there. There's still a lot of frictions in ways to communicate. You know, a lot of stuff is on, on Discord and, and all that stuff. But I, I do feel like the... It, it like to take maybe a simpler model is the transition that restaurants are going through. Um, you know, it's like basically every restaurant has some social media, you know, Instagram is huge. It's vital. You, you have to have that. That's like a non-negotiable. It's kind of like websites for businesses. Like if your business doesn't have a website, yeah. it's like, what are you doing? Um, but yeah. there's still a, a gap I feel with a lot of restaurants where they don't really interact with the customer. It's just kind of like, here's info, look here, 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 here. But now we have this way to interact kind of to your point where you're like, you're going to have people that have are running businesses outside of your, your locations that you're operating in and you want their feet. You want to know this is important because they know the product, they know this other jurisdiction and it just makes sense. And so it's like, it's like tapping into, um, this incredible resource, which is like, they're already using this. They want to use it here, more people connections. And then also like their friends, they're explaining like, Hey, hey it, it works great in Kenya. Like, why don't we do it here? It just, it just makes everything makes sense in that aspect. Yeah. Um, it's like in, in terms of timing and yeah, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that. Um, but I think just having a, <laughs> a form of, available and, and interacting with, the people who are really using the the product is it's like you have to that's how every business is is going to operate i feel and if they're not they're totally. going to be losing out compared to the businesses that do yep totally agree i mean i love the businesses i feel the most loyalty to are ones where there is kind of a cool community like i so i love to we mentioned spices a bunch uh like in addition to like buying spices in kenya i buy like fancy spices from these two companies in the u.s burlap and barrel and diaspora co like they have just like great like fancy single origin spices anyway they both have like one as a facebook group one as a discord community people are discussing like this is how we use those spices and like of course you're going to be much more likely to like it, it's not like they charge for you to participate in the community they don't like do anything it's just people talking about this is how i use my turmeric but of course you're much more likely to use more turmeric and buy more turmeric if you're talking to other people who are using it um, so I think it has like this, this customer benefit and like, the, it's like that people should be getting something more out of you than just your product. Like your product can also be your community. For sure. Um, maybe to kind of, to, to pivot a little bit, just to get your, some, yeah. some opinions because of what you're doing, but you know, obviously there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on with banks in the States, um, which is affecting a lot of people job wise and just making people uneasy and things like that. Um, curious sort of, if you have any opinions about what's, what's going on there. Oh, uh, well, I'm not a, certainly not like a financial, like bank, a U.S. banking sector expert, but I think what, like the fact that what has been like the the anti crypto party line for always has been like we like don't trust crypto because like that's just like scams and your money is not safe and you're gonna lose it 
And of course, like the origin story of crypto in 2008 was, hey, the banks were holding our money. They were supposed to do a job and they didn't. We can't really trust them. So we're going to do our own separate thing. And I think actually both sides kind of like are in the wrong in a lot of ways. Like the whole, it's so, it's always been interesting to me how so much of crypto the last several years is basically just like relearning the lessons and mistakes of traditional finance, like sort of like with Terra Luna we, or like FTX, it's like sort of like rehashing of all the historic like Ponzi schemes or bubble burstings that we've seen in traditional finance. Um, like, I, I, I don't know why people thought like, you know, that crypto would be like immune to that when it's clearly like the same, just basic human principles. So it's not like crypto is like this panacea. At the same time, like clearly the banking system is not this panacea. And um, I think right now, what's really unfortunate that like I just sort of, I, I just came from consensus, you know, this, uh, it's, you know, crypto conference in Austin. And I feel like the topic on every conversation was the current regulatory environment and like all of the actions, you know, the SEC right now has a sort of like, uh, regulation by like rando enforcement <laughs> policy um, that I think is pretty inconsistent and you know that just sort of a lack of regulatory clarity making it difficult for for private sector actors which is ultimately going to probably hurt the U.S. economy and I don't have to like re trot out all like the great lines that like Coinbase's general counsels had or all the crypto Twitter people who are commenting that hey like ultimately this is going to drive all this is going to do is just drive innovation and jobs and like uh, capital formation outside of the US, like off, off, off the shores. It's not gonna like make it like disappear. And that's just gonna be bad ultimately for people. And uh, it, it doesn't help when you have like the institutions you're telling us that you can trust are like just as messed up. Um, so I don't know, that's sort of, <laughs> that's like my general take on it. I guess I, 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 have, I have much more like, faith and um i'm just like a generally less skeptical person than a lot of like the diehard cryptos like i don't have the same like maybe like anarcho libertarian strain in me that i think a lot of people who like were the who really really flocked to crypto initially i, I do think like i do appreciate the roles that banks and financial institutions and governments play in our society i i don't think we should like do away with them altogether but like they're clearly like not like infallible institutions that we should just say like, oh yeah, they, whatever they say goes and the way they've been running it works. Cause clearly it doesn't like, that's the system that has resulted in the $5 trillion credit gap. That's the system that's resulted in people being excluded from the financial system and, you know, people losing their money just as much that way as they are in crypto scams. It is a wild situation to consider what's, what's going on. And, and to the point of kind of pushing out innovation, it's, in my mind, I think that the whole M-Pesa story is really interesting because they did do a sort of leapfrog technologically, and yeah. they were it was just way better than anything you could do at the time in the United States, for example, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, but then maybe you know, a couple of years down the line, we see Gia and you know you're you're offering better financial instruments than you can get in the United States. And maybe if other sort of innovators start to do stuff like that, people are going to wake up and be like, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. Like, why yeah. Why are we pushing out yeah. innovation? Totally. And I hopefully by then it's not like too late. I mean, it, just imagine all of the 
start like you know imagine all those startups or, or startup founders right now who are thinking about like huh do we like should this thing be like a delaware c corp or should we actually have to like do this thing like offshore like should we hire people in california or should we just like stay away from that altogether um and that's just like on the startup basis i mean imagine what would happen like coinbase already i think like set up what like their bermuda entity or something like that like the big companies are sort of making their contingency plans um yeah that's not great and, like i i'm uh, you know i'm not like a uh die hard like america is the best country ever you know not like a wearing my maga hat but i i do think america is good for a lot of things and i i would prefer that it remains like sort of a leader in financial innovation and that um it be a place that sort of fosters the development of these and application of these new technologies for sure so you you mentioned before sort of this idea of being able to distribute shares um for people that are you know paying um in time etc um that's sort of close to this idea of of ubi in in a weird not exactly not analogous Mm. but just curious if you have any sort of opinions i feel like it's it's a topic that kind of keeps popping up and especially with what's going on with ai um it's like there right now there are jobs that are being affected um it's not all linear and it's not all just going to happen overnight but it's it's here and it's it's doing stuff. So just curious, yeah. What you think about that. Like, what kind of society do we want? Do we want one where like like people's jobs? It, it's not like only AI. Like people's jobs were eliminated by like mechanization and in industry too. And like some some people, we found a way to like retrain so they could have other jobs and services. And some people are just like in a shitty place right now. And that's going to just continue to happen. Like technology will probably keep taking away other people's jobs. And like, how do we want to reimagine our society like do we like without some like actual intervention providing more of a social safety net people are going to be in a in a tough place and like the world's not better off when some portion of it is like under immense financial stress or not able to like have the comfort to feed their family and then like invest in education or whatever it is so i you know whether it's whether it's like a formal ubi program that happens for people whose like jobs are displaced or just like more of a social safety net. Uh, I think we need something like that. And I think there are cool crypto projects looking at this. I don't quite know how they have, how like the economics are sustainable of them. Like I remember, I mean, obviously when there was the time of just like, it felt like, you know, never ending up to the right, like DeFi yields, like money was being created, (laughs) like I guess. Um, And so it made sense that like some of the money that got created, instead of just going into the pockets of like, the dgens who are creating it like some portion of it could be like oh you can actually put this money in a ubi protocol and it's going to be distributed to someone in uganda or whatever that to me it sort of felt like charity though it was just like the money that gets created just given out um but if we had some systemic way of doing that it would feel important at, at geo we're not you know we're not we're not doing any sort of like i guess handout program i don't i don't really think it's the at least for now it's certainly not, the, I don't think it's the obligation of like small private sector actors like us to provide those sort of programs. I do think it's still, that's like a great role for government. The thing is increasingly, you know, the big massive tech companies are more important, are more um, sort of, are more financially sound and better able probably to implement these than some governments, you know, like Facebook or Google could probably do UBI in Uganda, maybe better than the Ugandan government. Um, shouldn't like do it on its own, but I think it's, it's an interesting thing to explore. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I was just thinking um, in terms of how the governments and regulators are thinking about crypto, what's the general sentiment? And then also kind of like, what's what's the general sentiment of just the, the people? Like what what's going on there when it comes to crypto? Like in, uh, in, in like Kenya, in, in the, in at least in the markets we're at, yeah. in Kenya and the Philippines. Yeah, you know, uh, um, so Kenya has been on like this, like this pioneer in financial innovation. You know, they, they, I think people, they're really proud that like they had M-Pesa long before anyone was doing anything like that in the West. And I think actually in the last couple of years, Kenya sort of like took a pause. Like they had a central bank governor who was a bit more conservative and was like, wait a second, like um, let's actually not innovate too much. And so he sort of is, a, you know, he's very public, like crypto skeptic and hasn't said so much, but his term is sort of coming to an end. And there are people within, like we work with a bunch of different, of the, the different Kenyan regulators. And so within the capital markets authority, there are all these people who work for the regulatory sandbox there who are really excited about crypto and like individually, I know are active and they are there's there's sort of this new crypto legislation being or regulation being worked on there um so i think people are excited for it i think they see this as a you know continue like what is it what are what are the great challenges in emerging markets and in countries around africa is like there are not very deep capital markets there's not enough foreign direct investment so like they're always at like you know look at the kenyan shilling it's down like 20 percent against the dollar because reserves keep blowing out um they want to change that, and what's a what's a good way to change that is being friendly to this technology that, you know, makes capital move more efficiently across borders. So I think in certainly in Kenya and in, and in the Philippines, the Philippines had this like massive crypto adoption, crypto adoption. That everyone remember like early in the pandemic, everyone was talking about Axie Infinity and you know seeing pictures of you know whatever grandmas going on there to like be able to pay for their family groceries. Um, and I don't know, yeah, I don't know how much that's still happening that, yeah, that um, but that was like from a certain time but i think people it's, it's enough that it piqued curiosity that i think people are excited about what you know what what this technology can bring um at the same time there's also just now a lot of skepticism because i think the reality is in in most of the world now i think crypto is almost like synonymous with for when people first hear it, it's like synonymous with scam or like get rich quick people have all you know a lot of them have had like a cousin be like yo, I'm making all this money on crypto is crazy. I had like a thousand dollars. Now it's $20,000. And then like, everyone's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it too. And then they all lose their money. And then like, it's really hard to, once you have a personal experience like that, it's kind of hard to recover and not just see crypto as like a bad word. Um, so that's, that's really, and that's, I mean, think why, like, look at the, even though our nomenclature, we've started saying more things like blockchain based financing instead of crypto, or we say web three instead of crypto, or we, you know, even just like, institutions just saying digital assets like at consensus everything is about digital assets um so um that is certainly a challenge i think people you know you know people are are eager to learn and are excited, excited and curious i think more so in emerging markets than i find in the west about crypto um and like maybe don't have as much i think in the like a, among my peer group people who are skeptical about crypto i think there's just there's already just a general skepticism of like all new things tech or tech bro or whatever uh i don't think you have that like level of skepticism in kenya as much as just like oh man am i gonna get scammed again um so that's like a, an unfortunate thing that i think our industry has to overcome um at the same time the reality uh there's this oh there's this great quote and maybe i'll just sorry i just, I just read it so let me pull, pull up my browser yeah, which sure. was about um uh, um oh what, where is the story sorry um 
do, do, do. Oh, here we go. It's from, um, yeah, it's from this guy, Scott Alexander. And he said, I think a lot of Westerners want to think of developing world uh, uses like of crypto as a boring sideshow and highlight Westerners trading monkey gifts as the only part of crypto worth talking about. But about 66% of crypto users live in the developing world. More people own cryptocurrency in Africa than North America. If nothing's wrong with your country's financial or political system, then you don't need crypto. And like sort of goes on. But like the, the point is, like it's very easy for crypto skeptics sitting in the US to be like, we don't, why do we need crypto? Like we already, you know, like what the hell? It's just like, yeah, just to trade monkey gifs, really. Um, whereas if you're sitting in a country where your currency is worth 20% less than it was a year ago, that means like by doing nothing, no wrong of your own, just keeping your money in your bank account, you now have 20% less money. Like that really, really sucks. And I know everyone always talks, I mean, America has inflation too. So we're starting to experience that a little bit, but it's on such a minor scale compared to what people have been dealing with every fucking year in other countries, you know? Yeah, it, it is uh, difficult at times to explain sort of what the the financial situation is in different countries. And I've had my own experiences through through travel. I remember I was in Uganda and I went to a bank in the capital and they were out of cash and it's like mm. whoa okay yeah. what, what, I, what do i do now um but right. in, in a couple of years ago i was in india and they had just announced that they were going to exchange uh, yeah the the currency and i wouldn't have been able to stay there if it wasn't for uh my friend and who, who has family there that got me cash because it was so difficult and there was lines mm. everywhere and it was just a complete right. disaster. Um, and stuff like that is, it happens all over the world. Um, and it's, it seems like it's a lot more common than it should be. And so that those are just a couple tiny examples. I, I know there's a lot of other stuff going on and I just, um, I appreciate what you're, you're trying to build with Gia. I think it's a super important and super cool project. Um, it's been great talking to you. I know we're running up on time here, but what's the best way for people to stay up to date with you and what you're working on? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been a great conversation. Um, I, so the best ways to stay up to date with the project overall, I mean, obvious things, please just follow us on Twitter. It's Gia, J-I-A underscore DeFi. Um, and mine is at Z Marks, Z-M-A-R-K-S 215. If you go to our website, gia.xyz we have a little uh, email capture where you can just subscribe to our newsletter um we're going to be slowly sort of rolling out invites to our discord right now it's still just you know a, sort of a, a, a private close friends of gia uh community but we're going to be ex expanding on that and so if you sign up for our newsletter or follow us on twitter then we'll be able to at least be in touch with you um to sort of join that but also like i'm i, I love interacting with folks and please feel free to just email me it's zach Z-A-C-H at Gia.xyz. Um, I'm always happy to, to chat with folks. All right. Thanks so much. If you like the show, please give it a five-star review and share it. Thanks.